from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 36, Godzilla, U.S. 2014. OG fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And in this episode, we will be covering the 2014 film Godzilla U.S. 2014. Yep, the one directed by Gareth Edwards for Legendary Pictures. This was the starting point for the MonsterVerse, which... I would argue, as shared movie universes go, this is probably the most successful one next to Marvel's, but mostly because they're keeping it simple and there's only a few movies so far. Yes, the 10-year break is finally over for the franchise, which it felt like a very long time. I find it a little bit ironic that on the 60th anniversary of Godzilla in Japan, there's a new American movie, and then on the 60th anniversary of Godzilla in the United States, there's a new Japanese film. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) Our related topic for this episode is the 2014 reinterpretation of Article 9 of Japan's Constitution. But before we get to our film discussion, let's do our part one, which is our audience-focused and wonderful method that we use to describe these movies. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is an ancient alpha predator hunting the Mutos as nature's balancing force. He avoids confrontation with humans, but he shows little regard for the collateral damage he causes. The massive, unidentified terrestrial organisms, or Mutos, are prehistoric parasite kaiju unearthed by miners in the Philippines. The winged male and larger eight-legged female seek one another in order to mate and nest. Lieutenant Ford Brody is a loving and determined soldier who goes to Japan to bring his estranged father back to the U.S. and later takes part in military operations against the monsters while trying to get home to his family. His father, the grief-stricken and obsessive Joseph Brody, is a nuclear physicist seeking to prove the nuclear plant meltdown that killed his wife wasn't an accident. Dr. Shiro Sarazawa, Monarch's intelligent and thoughtful lead scientist, studies the kaiju and advises the U.S. military in combating them. Ford's wife, Elle Brody, is a concerned and protective nurse caring for their son, Sam, and treating wounded during the kaiju attacks. The human and kaiju plotlines have a moderately high intermix. Several characters have lives and jobs unconnected to the monsters, but their subplots intertwine more with the kaiju story as the film progresses. While Godzilla is perceived as a problem, the real enemies are the Mutos. Soldiers, fighter jets, and helicopters attack the male Muto with machine guns and missiles in Hawaii, but they are ineffective. Godzilla then fights the Muto, driving him away. The female Muto attacks a train transporting two ICBMs meant to kill the monsters in San Francisco, eating one of them. The male Muto steals the second warhead and takes it to the nest. Tanks and fighter jets attack Godzilla as he comes ashore near the Golden Gate Bridge, resulting in the bridge's destruction. Ford joins a strike force that Halo jumps into San Francisco to locate the nest and the ICBM while Godzilla battles the Mutos. The warhead is retrieved and Ford blows up the nest. 
Godzilla kills both Mutos and the ICBM is sent out to sea in a boat where it detonates. The script by Max Borenstein from a story by David Callaham and Frank Darabont is a relatively simple action thriller with a focused story and several subplots. The film was given a budget of $160 million by Warner Brothers and Legendary Pictures. The special effects were supervised by Jim Rigel, who won an Oscar for his work on the Lord of the Rings films. A 3D map of San Francisco was created from panoramic photographs, and CGI models of military vehicles were made from digital scans of the real things. Godzilla and the Mutos were realized using motion capture. Stuntman TJ Storm mocapped Godzilla with consultation from Andy Serkis. This gave the creatures detailed and expressive portrayals. The CGI is effective and atmospheric overall. This is a dark film with a lot of gravity. Much like the Godzilla films of the 1950s and mid-1980s, it presents extraordinary events in a realistic setting. Since this film uses many familiar kaiju genre tropes, it isn't an experimental film. The film reinforces the style of 1933's King Kong, the quintessential American giant monster movie, and to some extent the original 1954 Godzilla because of its tone and themes. However, it primarily reinforces the style of director Gareth Edwards' 2010 film, Monsters, with its slow build-up to an explosive finale. After TriStar's Godzilla license expired in 2003, Yoshimitsu Bano, director of Godzilla vs. Hedera, spent several years shopping around a concept for a 3D IMAX Godzilla film. This eventually led him to Legendary Pictures, who acquired the Godzilla license from Toho in 2010 and greenlit the project, retaining Bano as an executive producer. It would serve as the launching point for the MonsterVerse. The film was intended for the summer blockbuster audience and kaiju fans. When released May 16, 2014, the film grossed $93 million its opening weekend and over $200 million altogether in the U.S. When released in Japan by Toho July 25th, it earned 1.65 billion yen, or $16.2 million. Its global gross was $528 million. The film is generally well-received by fans and critics alike. There are several forces at play. Nature and civilization are frequently in conflict as the monsters invade human cities for their own purposes. Dr. Sarazawa insists that Godzilla is nature's balancing force, but Admiral Stenz is uncertain and prefers a military solution be used against the Mutos. Monarch is a secret scientific organization dedicated to researching kaiju and covering up their existence, which puts them at odds with the truth-seeking Joe Brody. The film's primary theme is famously stated by Dr. Sarazawa. The arrogance of man is believing that nature is in our control, and not the other way around. To that effect, characters often find themselves small and powerless in the face of nature's fury. Balance is restored through Godzilla, implying the natural world can solve its own problems, and mankind should learn to trust it. Elsewhere, there's a tremendous emphasis on family. Ford reconciles with his father and does everything he can to reunite with his wife and son. L protects Sam even as chaos escalates. Ford watches over a stranger's child amidst disaster. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we discuss the film and we give our opinions. So I thought that I was going to be really nice to this movie initially, but then I uh, looked at my notes. (laughs) Is it that bad? (laughs) There are things that I like and there are things that I don't. It's a mixed bag for me. But I know you like this, right? Yes, uh, I would actually probably say this is one of my favorites. I think we're going to have a little bit of a disagreement here. (laughs) 
this should be good podcasting. Reading the reviews of this is, is kind of like a lot of stuff on that movie, that movie database. database yeah. Like a lot of stuff on there. The, the reviews are sometimes like bipolar. Every time I look at reviews on that movie database, it just seems like a flame war between people who want to give this movie one star for whatever reason and then people who give it ten stars just to offset it. At the time that we're recording this episode, uh, Godzilla 2014 has a 6.4 rating. That puts this movie in line with Invasion of Astro Monster, but it is outperformed by Final Wars, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Tokyo SOS, Mechagodzilla 2, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, Godzilla vs. Biollante, Destroy All Monsters, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, Godzilla vs. Destroya, GMK, and the original. So that puts it about midway down the list. Mm-hmm. Pretty much right in the middle. Without further ado, let's get to the things that we like. We saw this in the theater at G-Fest mm-hmm. 24. Actually, and actually, that was the, the third time I had seen this in a movie theater. Because I saw it twice when it was first running. For some reason, I didn't get to see this in the theater originally. So I was glad to see this movie in the theater finally at G-Fest, which was nice. And we got to see what the crowd reacted to and what they didn't. And I know. That was interesting. The, that was actually my favorite viewing uh, out of the three because we were in a theater full of fans and they were always cheering at the right moments. <laughs> Pretty much whenever Godzilla was on the screen. Yeah, although I'm still a little mad at that one guy who stole the joke I was sitting on the entire time, <laughs> which is making a Mortal Kombat reference when he finishes off the Muto. Overall, I like the cinematography and the effects. It looks polished. The monsters look organic. The, yeah, the CGI is good. I really have very little to complain about in that respect. And it's and is filmed well. with, with the, uh, All the human scenes are filmed quite well, too. And it looks pretty. It's a pretty nice-looking film. I love the atmosphere in this movie. It's a very atmospheric film, particularly when the monsters are on screen. There's a tremendous sense of size. There's a tremendous sense of fear and dread. Gareth Edwards really understands how to how to film something like this, filming it at ground level to make the audience feel small. In fact, the first time I I saw this movie, it was in IMAX 3D here in Fort Wayne. Even though that's not normally how I would go see a movie like this, it ended up being very beneficial because you really, you felt like the characters at that point. And the monsters are treated with awe throughout this whole thing, particularly Godzilla. I always love seeing Godzilla treated, uh, treated that way. That's right. This movie feels like a Godzilla movie. It got the atmosphere right. And if you're going to get the gravity of Godzilla in a movie in the United States, you should put it into this one. Because it's been 10 years, you're starting something completely new, and so you want to give it that atmosphere so that, so that the significance of the kaiju comes across. Because you can always do all these big monster fights later, but... You, if you're going to put it any of the gravity in, you want to do it bef- you know, sooner rather than later. And the point here is, is that Godzilla is getting his own Hollywood movie. And this doesn't happen very often, at least hasn't over the years. No. And this was largely successful. And regardless of what you might think about this movie, Hollywood could have screwed this up a lot worse. See, even if you think it's bad. See Godzilla 1998 for our points. <laughs> What I find interesting is that countries 
in the world, you know, it's, it's a really big difference as to which one they like. It's either the 98 version or the 2014 version. And countries that the 98 version went, it went over well, they didn't like 2014 as much. And ones that 98 didn't go very well, then they like this one. Mm-hmm. Right, so at least this movie is not Godzilla 1998. And so it's a major course correction away from that. It's going yes. in the right direction, <laughs> regardless of what you might think. It's going in the right direction, at least. That's the if you're if you're going to make excuses for for stuff, then that's the biggest excuse that you want to use. Yeah, this is this is an American Godzilla film that Toho is actually happy with. <laughs> I was just about to say that Toho liked this a lot. Mm-hmm. Not that that's the greatest, most important thing in the world for people who love the Godzilla series, but it's it doesn't hurt. I know this is a point of contention with this film's detractors, but I really like the pacing in this movie, particularly because Edwards is a student of Spielberg, a movie I heard him talk about a lot when he talked about making this movie was Jaws and how you don't really get to see much of the shark in Jaws until toward the end of the movie. And he did the same thing here with Godzilla. I have to say, just getting glimpses of Godzilla and then getting up to that big moment halfway through the movie with the reveal of him finally uh, the full body reveal of him finally at the airport. It was, it was glorious and I loved it. And then, uh, then the buildup again after that leading up to the big climactic battle, I really enjoyed that because it made the climax even more explosive when you finally got there. But what's interesting is I almost went the route of this movie's critics when I was watching it the first time. Have you ever seen the movie Monsters, Brian? I still haven't. That's unfortunate. It's a very, very interesting movie. I remember the first time I watched this movie and you had that cutaway scene at the airport and we just see bits of the fight with the Muto on a television. And I thought, what are you doing? And then I remembered, this is how Gareth Edwards works, is I had seen Monsters. Something he always talked about when making Monsters was how the Spielberg movie was always just over the hill from the characters he was following. So that when you did get to scenes where the characters were meeting the creatures that are featured in that movie, it made them really stand out and it made those scenes exciting. So once I remembered that, the movie made more sense to me. But I think a lot of people, since Monsters was a small independent film, probably hadn't seen that. So they felt disappointed when those uh, when that came up because they didn't know how Edwards works. There is the possibility and the danger of having Godzilla overexposed to the point that it's not interesting anymore or exciting and it's just there. And so there's a delicate balance you have to work with on that. One thing I really like about Godzilla 2014 is that it conveys American characteristics and aesthetics. This has shadows of being a 9-11 movie at times, particularly the scenes in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I know that the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 was a big deal, and some movies contain elements of that. I'm thinking a lot about Star Trek Into Darkness from 2013, which was just a year before this was released. It also captures the sort of the military element of being away from home, missing your family. There's a lot of people in the United States who live in that situation or have had family members or somebody else they know who's in that situation. At the, the beginning of this movie does a good job getting all of these things across about contemporary America at the time. 
Yes, I def- I would agree with you there. It was one of the parts of this movie that that really struck me the first time I saw it. It very much is a reflection of that moment in time. One hour into the movie, we get our victims scene, and it's not a hospital. Maybe it should have been, but maybe it doesn't need to be. Um, I won't fault them for having a FEMA-style recovery system uh, in place here. And we get the same sort of scene that that briefly later, where before Godzilla wakes up at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that evokes a lot of feelings for people who have been through situations like this, whether it's mm-hmm. Hurricane Sandy or whether it's Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're talking about the, the scene where everyone's in the, the sports stadium? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... I remember hearing a lot about that going on uh, during Hurricane Katrina. And also that very brief scene of, uh, at the end where you had the rescue workers digging through rubble looking for survivors. I, that made me think of 9-11 because that's what we people spent days digging through that rubble hoping they could find somebody. There's also some American patriotism in this movie. What we're doing in this movie is they're depicting people in the military who are doing their job. That is disaster management because these movies, a lot of it is about disasters, or at least it's referencing disasters because the aftermath of all these kaiju fights, that's pretty much a disaster. We're depicting people who are doing their job. And that's what our main character, Ford Brody, is doing. Yes. And the other thing about the military in this is that they're outmatched by the monsters, but they're not incompetent. No, there, there's no um, SDF incompetence. No, no, with no. no Godzilla versus Hedera sort of yeah, you know, incompetence going on here. I feel like the, especially the, the military leaders that we see in this, they're very even keel, very even handed. They're not just looking for any excuse they can think of to go start blowing up monsters. They're trying to figure out how to handle the situation as best they can. And that's refreshing. Yeah, Stens. Yeah, I love Stens in this. Yeah, he's he's not some shorts cop looking guy who's just sitting around barking orders at people and no. being, being ignorant. Yeah. No, he's a little bit pensive, but I think rightfully so. Yeah, because he's in the hot seat. Mm-hmm. One thing that really works in this is the whole balance of nature, alpha predator dynamic going on with Godzilla and the Mutos. It's a sort of more organic, naturalistic way to view Godzilla and his foes. And it works quite well, actually. It makes That's one of the things that actually makes sense in the story. Let's talk about the kind of Godzilla that we have created here in 2014, because it's not a hero, and it's a force of nature, but at the same time, it's quite different from our normal force of, the nat- force of nature Godzilla. Yeah. In some ways, this is several of Godzilla's incarnations kind of rolled into one because it it has traits of the defender of the earth Godzilla, but it's also the force of nature Godzilla. And there are still some nuclear connections as well. So you're getting a, an interesting hodgepodge. He's neutral to people. Yeah. He's acting as a balancing force for nature. When you watch the movie, he avoids confrontation with the humans, but it's because he doesn't perceive them as a threat. They're not a problem. Which implies to me that, it, you know, this is a, something they could potentially do in future films in the MonsterVerse is that if he then starts to perceive humanity as upsetting the balance of nature, he may just as well go after them. Yeah, it's, it's vague, I guess, enough that you could, you could move 
Godzilla's character around some. Which is why I think this movie has some interesting connections to GMK, because the Guardian monsters in that film were presented the same way. Now, that was in a more of a fantasy setting with some more religious overtones. But the Guardian monsters' first loyalty in that film was to the Japanese homeland, not the people. Yeah, and this movie is dealing more with very huge forces that we can't control. I mean, that's the whole one of the biggest points of this whole movie is that. And obviously, Godzilla as an alpha predator who's really huge, he is kind of not oblivious to humans, but he is working on a completely different level than humans versus something. And I think this is exemplified with that TV news headline that we see at the end of the movie that says, King of the Monsters, Savior of our city, with a question mark. So even at the end of this movie, people are wondering, can we trust this creature? Because, yes, he stopped the Mutos and prevented them from breeding and infesting the whole city, probably, with more of their kind. But look at the damage he caused. This is sort of ambiguous as to what people think of Godzilla, just because he wasn't interested in them anyway. There's a, there's the question of is the huge thing that we're impo- that, that it's impossible to control is this a, a friend or foe? Mm-hmm. And actually, it's interesting that you bring that up about the ambiguity of this because you do have that headline, but we're seeing this on the jumbotron in the the sports stadium, and the people in the stadium are cheering mm-hmm. when he wakes up because they had wondered if he, if Godzilla was dead, and then he woke up and they're like, "Yay, he's not dead!" But again, it's juxtaposed against. You know, this headline. So it leaves the audience something to ponder, I think, at the end of the day. I really like Juliette Binoche in this movie. <laughs> okay. The whole three minutes or whatever that <laughs> yeah. she's on the screen and we get to see her. It's good. She gets to steal the show with in in one of the most intense Heart emotional wrench. moments yeah. in the whole Godzilla series is that. Yes. And My her goodness. and she and Brian Cranston do such a great job with this. They are wonderful together. Absolutely wonderful. And she's a great actress, and she's an Oscar winner, and she's the first Oscar-winning actress to be in a Godzilla movie. So there's really no drawbacks other than the fact that she's not really in it. (laughs) So unfortunate. I obviously really love Bryan Cranston. That's just self-explanatory. He should have stayed in it longer, too. But his character, it looks like he just belongs in this movie. Oh, he does. (laughs) He, He really, really does. We also have a new Dr. Sarazawa. Played yes. by Ken Watanabe. I love Ken Watanabe, by the way. Yes, I've he's lo- great. I've seen him in a lot of stuff. Now. I've loved him ever since The Last Samurai. <laughs> and I was excited to find out that he was going to be in this movie. And he's a new, like I said, he's a new Dr. Sarazawa to boot. All he's missing is the eye patch. But, you know, as my friend Ben pointed out, if they had made a pop culture movie with a guy wearing an eye patch, everyone would just think they're trying to copy Nick Fury or something But <laughs> from the Marvel movies. Well, but, we, don't, we don't need to jam the nostalgia down everybody's throat either. No. <laughs> Although, I have to admit, uh, when we, uh, later on in the movie, when he's talking about how his father was at Hiroshima d- uh, during the atomic bombing, I kept hoping that just maybe, just maybe, we would see a, an old photograph of his dad, and it would be Harada from the original film. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Ken Watanabe is great, though. I also like the glasses that he wears in this movie. He looks great in them. Mm-hmm. And he adds a, a good amount of atmosphere to the backstory of, of, of Godzilla, and, and that works mostly, too. And he used the Japanese name, and he says it really cool. <laughs> yeah, he does. So Aaron Taylor Johnson is our chief protagonist. Yes, Ford Brody. 
Guy from Kick-Ass. Yeah. (laughs) I know a lot of people don't much care for Ford. I think he's kind of boring, but I think I know what they were going for in this. I think they were making Ford an everyman. He's a regular guy who is just trying to be a good father, a good husband, and he gets caught up in all of this. And we've seen characters like that before in the Godzilla series, most notably in Godzilla Raids Again, where you have, again, ordinary people getting caught up in all of these crazy things. And and what's the alternative? Like, he's some super heavily military guy, and then that's his personality. You know, so he's like jarhead military grunt or whatever. Now, that would have been boring for me. That would have been more boring than this. Yeah. Because he just would have been some cookie-cut-out soldier like you know, and with like ten different stereotypes all working at once. Mm-hmm. And my friend Ben actually pointed something out when we because we saw the movie together when I saw it the first time is that in a lot of ways, uh, Ford's story is not unlike the Odyssey, where Odysseus has been separated from his family, he's far away, and he goes on this journey to get home, and along the way, he has to deal with monsters. Yeah, it's kind of familiar, actually. I really don't have very many major complaints about Aaron Taylor Johnson. Because I don't know exactly what, if you're going to go with this kind of story, I don't know what what he was supposed to do more of. And Ford is dealing with things that I think most people in the audience w- would understand. Having a father that he's estranged from doesn't know how to handle him and having to clean up after his messes in some way. And But at the same time, you can tell he loves his father and wants to help him out, wants to bring him home so that they can put the family back together again, but his dad just, he has to figure everything out. So he reluctantly goes along with him. And that speaks more to how his character is in every man at the end of the day. What'd you think of the score in this film, Brian? Just like how I feel about the movie, I feel like this is a mixed bag. It works some places better than others. I would agree with you. The score by Alexander Dupla doesn't always stand out. There are certain tracks that do. I will admit, I, th- I thought the soundtrack for Pacific Rim, which was also made by Legendary the year before this, was was more memorable and better overall. But I still really did en- enjoy this at the right times. The music in this might be a little bit too intense at times for what's going on on the screen. That's the only time that I thought things were out of whack. I have to wonder if for some people the, the opening scenes of this movie scared them a little bit. Because they look a bit like Godzilla 1998. It does. The opening credit sequence, which, by the way, the fact that they even have an opening credit sequence, I think is great because most movies don't have opening credit sequences anymore. A lot don't, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really like how they did with, how, what they did with this one, showing excerpts of stuff, of books like Origin of the Species and what looks supposed to be old archival footage, and then... You have text on the screen, and it gets redacted, and then it'll say, you know, produced by so-and-so, and it'll put the, the, the names and stuff up there. I thought that was pretty cool, but it does look a lot like the opening to Godzilla 98, and then that— Which op- you really want to avoid. Yeah, and then the that first scene when they're—after they've investigated the mine and they figure out something got out, and then you have this big path that got carved out by the monster— out into the ocean, that shot looked like something similar from Godzilla 98. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, man, that might have made some G fans pretty nervous at first. It was like, please don't go that route. Please don't go that route. Maybe one reason why I didn't see this in the theater was that I was afraid. 
yeah. just what was going to happen. I mean, it, yeah. a lot of people might have thought that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I can remember uh, when we uh, met for another podcast recording, for our, uh, our friend's podcast recording, and I, you were saying that you didn't really want to go see it. I said, I was telling you then, it's like, it's okay, dude, go go, ca- go see it. It's all right. <laughs> another scene I, I really like, because this isn't something that you, you often see in these movies. It's about 34 minutes in. And that's when Dr. Sarazawa just makes a decision and says, kill it, because he knows that the the cocoon they have for the Muto is starting to get out of hand. And there's none of this talk about how, is this the right thing to do or anything? He's He realizes everyone's safety trumps science at this point, so he makes an executive decision. As opposed to just sitting around and researching it until it hatches and then yeah. starts killing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it ends up not working out, but still, he made the decision to take care of it right then and there. And speaking of the Mutos, I really like these creatures. They were a little bit of surprise. They weren't featured very much in the in the advertising. What I like about them is that in the grand scheme, if you look at the pantheon of Godzilla monsters, they're actually pretty unique. I, I like that each, there's a male and a female, and the designs are different. The you know the male is smaller and can fly, so it's got some shades of Rodan, and their heads have a little bit of a a Geigen look to them, just a tiny bit with how the their mouths are designed. The female, since it's larger and looks a little bit more insect-like, so it's kind of like Camacaris. Did you make any connections to Gauss from Gamera versus that Gauss? That definitely makes sense. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Definitely it's see that. The color mm-hmm. and the fact that one of them flies. Mm-hmm. If you see monsters, the the creatures in that they look a little bit of like those creatures as well. Particularly the female with the long with the really long limbs and being very tall. And the other thing that's good about the Mutos is that this is the first new monster in the Godzilla franchise since Titanosaurus that is completely original. And by that, I mean there are no connections to any pre-existing kaiju. Or Godzilla. Or Godzilla. You know, Biolante was just a Godzilla plant. Batra is evil Mothra. Space Godzilla is evil Godzilla. Yeah, et cetera. Uh, Et cetera. So they're their own thing. Yeah, I do like the originality part. Definitely. Yeah. And since these monsters are original, it helps to make the whole rest of the film original. Because my opinion is if you're going to reboot something like this, since there's already going to be a lot of comparisons drawn, make your antagonist something original. You know, that's it helped Batman Begins. Yeah. Batman, we, we've seen plenty of Batman movies before, but the, all of the villains in that movie we hadn't seen in a movie before. And I think that helped it. And it's the first movie, so you want to you don't want to make the first movie seem like a retread of a lot of old stuff. Agreed. I really like Godzilla's roar in this. It was effective and seemed very original. Yet, even though it's not really, but it's a good or new original take on it. Yes, uh, it's certainly better than just recycling the Japanese roar and putting it in the mouth of a giant iguana. <laughs> but I really like how throaty. It sounds it's it really it's deep. Yeah, it's very deep. You can tell it's, it's coming from Godzilla's gut and he's just expelling it right out. And it sounds like something an alpha predator would make. Oh, yeah. The scene with the Russian submarine that ends up getting found on land and, and then the reveal of the Muto at that part. That's quite good. I like that a lot. Yes. <laughs> the scene with the fighter jet getting hit by the EMP, which is like that's like pretty soon right after the submarine is found. That's pretty good. The way that it's filmed and then the showing 
the sort of helplessness of of the pilot. Uh, I just I like that scene too. That's the other thing that's cool about the Mutos is I like their powers in this. The EMP that's that's unique amongst the Godzilla monsters. Now I don't know how effective it would be against monsters, but it does numbers on these electronics <laughs> that the poor humans are using. Right after that, the I love this shot. It was used in the trailers for this movie because it really gives you a sense of scale. And that is as Godzilla's walking through the city and there's a couple of people on the roof of a building and they shoot off some flares and the flares come up, arc up, and then they come down right in front of Godzilla's chest. And there's that low rumble in the soundtrack and you see water falling off of Godzilla. So there's all this detail on the effects and it, and then you see just how big he is compared to all of these buildings around him really just gives you a sense of awe and just the sheer size and power of Godzilla. And then as far as the sheer power of the Mutos, we get to see the Muto where it picks up the people mover car that's on the little monorail. And that's really conveys the helplessness of the people in the, in the vehicle and, and how sort of screwed they realize they are. Yeah. And the, there's a shot right before then that sets that up with him just hanging out over the tracks, but it's off in the distance. And it, I don't know why, but it's that part just seems strangely Lovecraftian to me. I think it's partly the design of the creature and just that sense of size and just how small everyone feels compared to him. And all of this leads up to one of the scenes, the moment that gets one of the biggest cheers out of the crowd at G-Fest, which is that shot that reveals Godzilla, where you see his foot come down uh, in the airport, and then the camera pans up and shows him, and then he just bellows a roar right at the male Muto. It's amazing. It's a very good reveal. Yes. I think there was a guy at G-Fest who yelled out when that happened, that never gets old. <laughs> no, the, yeah, stuff like that does not get old. And you have to do a good job at it, and they did. One of the most suspenseful things in the movie for me is about 76 minutes in. It's when the female Muto attacks the military train trying to get the ICBMs. And it's skulking around trying to find them and all of our characters are trying their best to just lay down and be as quiet as possible, hoping that the thing does not see them or hear them as small as they are, because they know that if they, if they get spotted, they're screwed. Yeah. It's one of those moments where I realized Gareth Edwards understands how to make Kaiju scary because it's one of those moments where Again, especially seeing this in IMAX the first time, you really get that sense of size. And that's how you make kaiju scary. You make the audience feel small. Yeah, it makes humans helpless, and it highlights the human inability to control their surroundings. At about 127.44 into the movie, we get the power outage that occurs in San Francisco, and all of those fighter jets crash. And the yeah. one of the of the fighter jet crashing into the skyscraper was pretty cool moment yeah especially the way how it sort of came out of silence and you see the guy on the parachute just before that Mm -hmm. that works and then 128 20 and that's where the muto comes from like straight down and then goes into the water dives into the water Mm -hmm. and that that's amazing it's very good and and from that point on really i don't have anything to complain about with regards to the movie itself overall oh yeah (laughs) that's when it just heats right up it goes nuts yeah, this kind of does a Gator of the Three-Headed Monster kind of build up and then release. Yeah, that's 
that's something I remember reading about how this is an American film, but in a lot of ways it adheres to a very Japanese style of storytelling with uh-huh. this with this slow build up and then this explosive finale. Yeah, it's a, it's a rhythm that's kind of different for Americans to yeah. deal with. Yeah, and I think that might have been one of the things that threw them off when they saw this the first time. I don't think they were expecting that. Yeah, they wanted insta action. Yeah, which if you want that, you watch Pacific Rim, but you know, but Pacific Rim is a very different sort of movie. Yeah, and maybe they thought Pacific Rim or this was going to be like Pacific Rim, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in this entire movie is the halo jump. I absolutely love that. What did you think about it of it, Brian? It was overall an interesting thing to have them do, just because of the 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 mechanics of how the EMP works and all that. It was it was really different. Yeah, and I think it was a good choice to use that piece of music from 2001 in this. I had actually, the first time I sent it, it had been so long since I had seen 2001, I had forgotten that that was from 2001. It really fit in, I think, with the tone that they were trying to go for, because I had heard that Gareth Edwards' goal with that scene was he wanted it to look like the soldiers are descending into hell again kind of a another well, the way it looks Greek there mythology with, yeah thing. the way yeah. it looks there with the clouds and everything up there this it looks pretty hellish yeah. yeah and the the coloring the the creatures fighting in the background yeah and there's a lot of feeling and atmosphere that goes into all that yeah tremendous sense of dread and then after that that's when it just oh man it gets really crazy and you get an incredible kaiju fight, an incredible series of things just going on after that. Uh, the monsters are all fighting. The Our, our hero, Ford, is uh, taking center stage and doing everything he can to help out. He's the one who destroys the nest for the Mutos, and uh, it's pretty clever, I thought. He was the only one who actually stopped and thought, maybe we should blow this thing up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone else was, uh, all of his buddies were hightailing it. <laughs> it's funny, I, I read something somewhere about how uh, he was. I think he was referring specifically to a scene between Ford and L. How you know they in one scene displayed more affection than all of the Japanese movies put together. And then it's funny because there's a point in this movie where even the the Mutos show affection for one another because they nuzzle each other when they meet up in San Francisco. But mm-hmm. you really get to see the monsters' personalities come through during the last 20 minutes or so of this movie. Uh, the female Muto wails in rage when she finds out that her nest has been destroyed, and then she just goes berserk yeah, I guess after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she just goes crazy. I, the monster fight at the end of this is is just incredible. I, I loved watching the the two Mutos double team Godzilla. Each of them using very different tactics. You know, the male is attack, coming at him from the air, and the female is always trying to outmuscle him the whole time. What one of my favorite moments in this, and I, I remember seeing this for the first time because it dawned on me: we're this deep into the movie, and we haven't seen Godzilla use his atomic breath. Because mm-hmm. nobody knew if they were even going to have that. So you get to this point where there's a lot of dust flying around in the air. And you see that familiar little uh, charging spines starts turning blue and it goes. Yeah, starts, and it's a good, that's a good sound. Too. Yeah. And it starts from the, the end of the tail and goes all the way up. And you see Godzilla take this huge breath. And then he just lets it loose on the Muto. It's a stand up and cheer moment at that point. And I remember actually more or less doing that. I exclaimed, oh, yes, <laughs> the first time I saw it. And when we saw it at G Fest, everyone cheered and applauded. 
then you get to the end. We get to see. We get to see it again, and we get to see Godzilla whip out. Uh, I guess you could say his uh, his finishing move because you know, he grabs the Muto at the end. And I'm thinking, okay, what's he gonna do? I thought he was gonna do the King Kong thing and break the the Muto's yeah, jaw. Yeah, break the jaws open. Yeah. Yeah. But then he surprises me and just and blasts her down the throat, which I've heard some fans refer to as the kiss of death. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we were talking about the soundtrack earlier. This is one of the moments where I really thought the soundtrack worked when Godzilla's standing there with the head of the Muto in his hand and he just roars in victory and you had this triumphant piece of music just playing, announcing yeah, his victory. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. There's something very primal and cathartic with that scene with the kiss of death we'll say and then lastly i like how this movie ends with godzilla walking out into the ocean with the triumphant music playing and then as he descends into the water it gets it slowly fades out and gets a little bit quieter and then we just have this very brief shot of water after he has descended into it and then it's over yeah that part was kind of nice I know that other movies are doing this whole thing too, but getting to the things that we have difficulties with, almost my number one problem with this movie is Monarch. (laughs) Yeah, I knew you were going to bring this up. Let me get this straight. This reminds me of X-Files a little bit, but totally not. They're a secret organization, and they have their own logo on a helicopter that they're flying around in. And then when someone finds out about Godzilla and the Mutos, Monarch shows them a slideshow. <laughs> they love their slideshow. Where they tell them everything, and I mean everything. All of this is top secret information, including how nukes had nothing to do with the Cold War, presumably. So how many people have seen this slideshow? I don't remember people in X-Files. I don't remember Mulder and Scully showing people slideshows. Anyone who saw the slideshow could have just gone to the press and unmasked this whole deal. But it just seems kind of lazy. I don't understand why Monarch was created at all. And so why were they trying to nuke Godzilla in the first place? Wow. Like He didn't threaten anything, right? They, so they find not him that, and then they want to... Yeah, we're they told find him and then they just want to get rid of him. So if Godzilla threat, didn't threaten anything all these decades, then why the hydrogen bombings? And then also, why all of the atomic tests in Nevada? I don't, you know, (laughs) there were other nuclear tests all over the world in plenty of places that weren't the South Pacific. But that's just glossed over with, oh, they were trying to kill it. Well, the Castle Bravo test, I know for sure, was an attempt to kill him. Well, it kind of implied that other nuclear tests were too, because we were trying to kill it, meaning more than one. And we live in the here and now We live with Google Earth and all this other stuff, but the logic of this movie is a little bit flimsy. And there's really not any necessity for having to make something that doesn't really make all that much sense. Like, approximately 500 people work at this abandoned nuclear plant that has its own monster cage. Now, I know it's Hollywood, but this could have been cleared up and made easier to understand and just to make sense. Cover-ups are not easy. Nixon could not even cover up Watergate, which that was such a simple thing. All it was was a burglary. Couldn't even cover that up. But the Mudo gets out, and they say it's an earthquake. Uh, all right, so you so you just went to the press and said, hey, everybody, we'd like to invent a fake earthquake, even though everybody is a seismologist nowadays, and you can 
totally tell on multiple instruments that it wasn't. But anyway, I want to show the people who created Operation Monarch in the story and show them a slideshow about how Operation Monarch can be improved upon. (laughs) Operation Monarch overall is annoying. Did any other Japanese Godzilla movies have to cover up stuff? No. (laughs) No. They could have just, especially when they get Ford Brody into the room and they ask him, well, what has your father said to you and all that? And he barely even answers that question. And then they're like, oh, slideshow time. <laughs> so they decide Ford Brody, of all people, our everyman. Yeah, he's the everyman. Yeah. They decide to tell him everything. All this top secret stuff. But they didn't need to. They could have just taken him into an interrogation room and said, what did your dad tell us about everything? And then they couldn't. They didn't have to give him any information in that. Also, the whole secrecy thing is a bit strange because... Once something as large and unpredictable as a kaiju appears, the part about this being kept a secret is pretty much thrown out the window at that point. Yeah, and there is a line. Of all the big things to hide in the world, kaiju is maybe the biggest. Yeah, and there is a line to that effect because Stenz tells Sarazawa the time for secrecy is over now. (laughs) But was there a time for secrecy to begin with? That's what this whole thing, I just don't understand, because they know, they know that Godzilla could have appeared anywhere, because he can apparently travel, so mm-hmm. they should have just figured, well, this immediately becomes not a secret as soon as it appears, because then everybody will know. I just don't like this setup. They said it was a nuclear accident, and that there's radioactive stuff everywhere, and to make sure to stay away from the nuclear power plant that screwed up. Well, if okay, apparently, anybody can just go back to this place. Because, you know, yeah, Brody and his you know son do. But also, if anybody can go in there and they have any kind of Geiger counter, anybody would readily be able to tell that there's no radiation. So then that becomes a headline. But it's just hiding things in plain sight is not easy. Why bother to put all of this effort into this in the story, but then just have it? Oh, well, the monster appeared. I guess everybody knows now. <laughs> but it, I think it's hilarious that they they get Ford Brody in there and they're like, oh, hey, it's the guy from Kick-Ass. We need to tell him everything <laughs> about Godzilla that we know and bring him totally up to speed, even though we don't supposedly tell this to anybody. It's just odd. And I know that Monarch was used in Kong Skull Island and, and we're going to be seeing more of Monarch around, but I'm not a fan of it. The other Godzilla movies didn't have a need for this to happen. You were going to say something about the how much screen time Godzilla has in this movie and about when he when he first appears and all that, because it's about one, about the one hour mark. Yeah, it's it's a point of contention, as I've mentioned before. You get glimpses of Godzilla, usually just his spines or his tail or his chest or something like that. But you don't actually see him entirely until about 59 minutes in. So we're talking a little bit more than halfway through the movie, because this is a 111-minute movie. And then there's all these complaints about how not only do you have to wait that long to see him, but then the monsters don't have as much screen time throughout the film, and then you have to spend all this time with all the human characters. I have a couple of responses to that. First, there were Japanese Godzilla films where Godzilla didn't show up until later. One that I would point to is Terror of Mechagodzilla. Now, I crunched the numbers on this. He appears... 48 minutes in, and Terror of Mechagodzilla is an 83-minute movie. So that's 
more than halfway into it. And he's not even mentioned until, I think, a couple of minutes before he appears. And then he's saying, oh, there isn't, there aren't enough scenes with the monsters? One of the most beloved Godzilla movies, Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, Invasion of Astro Monster, the monsters don't have a lot of screen time in that. It's maybe six to eight minutes at most. But people love that movie. And I mentioned uh, Edwards loves building up atmosphere and suspense leading up to it. It makes the monster scenes have even more punch. And then you know people say, oh, the Mutos get more screen time than Godzilla. And they show up before he does and all of that. And again, I point to Terror of Mechagodzilla. Titanosaurus shows up within the first couple of minutes. He gets a lot of screen time before Godzilla ever shows up. So what I'm saying is, is I just I, if people want to make complaints and they want to say, I wish there was more monsters... I wish Godzilla had more screen time. I can understand that. I just want people to be consistent. If they're going to lob that complaint against this movie, if you're a fan, you have to be realistic and look at the other movies and say, okay, yeah, if I'm going to complain about this one, I should complain about the other ones. The other thing is, is I've often felt like there are a lot of people in this fandom who would just like to have their kaiju movies that just have nothing but monsters in them. It seems to be about all they care about. The monsters should be the end-all, be-all in these movies at the expense of the human characters. And I'm sorry, I actually would like to have both, which is one of my problems with Kong Skull Island. We won't go into too much of it with that movie, but I felt like Kong Skull Island in a lot of ways was an overcompensation for this movie because you get a lot of action scenes, a lot of monsters. You see Kong inside of a couple of minutes. Yeah, monster shows up immediately. yeah. Did you crunch the percentages as far as what percentage of the film Godzilla is in versus the percentage of time that Godzilla is in in, say, some of these Showa series movies? Of those numbers, I wasn't able to crunch. But if I remember correctly, it's about I'm estimating it's about 10 percent because it's a 111 minute movie. And the number that I usually see is that Godzilla gets about 11 minutes of screen time. Right. I figured that out was that it was about 10 percent. What I'm wondering is, is about if that percentage is higher because 11 minutes out of 111 minutes is less percentage than 11 minutes out of 105 minutes or 100 or even 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. That is the percentage that I look at the most when thinking about this. It's hard for me, though, because even though I borderline like the Mudos, I feel like if you're going to have people in front of computer screens doing CGI... For a Godzilla movie, they should be doing CGI of Godzilla. And even though if we had just Godzilla in this movie, there would be no monster fight. That would be a massive negative on this movie for a lot of people. However, Godzilla 1984 just had Godzilla in it, and that worked pretty well. I just feel like you could have used that computer screen time doing more CGI of just Godzilla. I wonder if the decision to have more monsters in this, besides the obvious reasons, you know, it makes for good set pieces and and also it's in the long line of tradition of kaiju fights in these movies. I wonder if it was also because it was another way to distance themselves from the 98 film where again, that was a solo Godzilla outing. True. Probably wanting to see a monster fight was the overriding desire for for this. And, and they were able to create two enemies instead of one, which that also added more excitement to. You said how there are a lot of inputs into this movie, such as Jaws, as well as Gareth Edwards' previous film, Monsters. And I understand that. But this movie is called Godzilla. Do you think that perhaps 
Gareth Edwards might be doing the same thing to a lesser extent as Roland Emmerich did when he created 98. Because when they asked him to make Godzilla in 1998, they told him to make Godzilla and he made Jurassic Park slash Beast from 20,000 Fathoms 2. Mm-hmm. And, and Gareth Edwards, they told him to make a Godzilla movie and he made something in the style of monsters and then said that Jaws was a big input into it. Mm-hmm. So is he making what he wants to make or is he making what he should be making? I would argue he's probably doing a bit of both. He certainly produced a Godzilla movie. It looks and feels like a Godzilla movie. He's doing it in a different style. Well, he's doing it in the same style in that Godzilla doesn't show up very much. Mm-hmm. And this is the same thing with when he did Monsters, that he didn't show very many monsters yeah. in it. And then that was in large part because of the budget of the movie. It was a small independent film. But this isn't. No. And there's the same sort of proportional amount of screen time to Godzilla as that. Mm. So that's why I'm saying he's making this in a similar style. I see what you mean. I don't know. My biggest desire was that someday somebody in the United States will make a Godzilla movie and it'll feel like a 1970s Godzilla movie or a 1960s Godzilla movie where it's 90 minutes and we get the we get a standard recreation of a movie as good as like Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster or Invasion of Astro Monster, etc. I know that's maybe asking a lot on my part as a fan, but I'd love to see that nice, quick, 90-minute just bang and, and just hit everybody hard and, and make it big. But I doubt that that's what Hollywood is ever going to do. One issue that I have with this film is that there's a tsunami in it. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> I, I have so many questions about that scene, particularly. And, well, so you're going to tell me that Godzilla actually created a tsunami when he comes ashore? How come Godzilla's never done that before? I know he's bigger and fatter or whatever the... <laughs> The uh, criticism was leveled initially. <laughs> By the Japanese fans? <laughs> yeah. Although they did, some of them did come around and like it, though. Yeah. But how come this has never happened before? And how how come Godzilla doesn't create one whenever he comes ashore? And I just have so many questions about this scene. Is this to reference the 2011 tsunami that was part of the, the, uh, er- the Great East Japan earthquake? Because that was worse than this. But... It, could it be referencing the, the tsunami from 2004? Did the, or did somebody who just created the graphics for this say, hey, I can do this. Do you want me to do it? And somebody said yes. But you, you could have spent that money and that time showing us a little bit more of Godzilla. We talked about the Heisei series, particularly where Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2, where Rodan flies over the water and the water explodes. <laughs> yeah. But this kind of strikes me as another version of that, where you did something just because you could. (laughs) But the tsunami doesn't work for me Hmm. because, like, how fast is Godzilla supposed to be going in the water in order to do this? (laughs) Like, was he just creating that much of a wave on his way there? Like, Like, was he swimming and was sort of oscillating so that there was some big wave building before he came to shore, how come this didn't happen in San Francisco? Yeah, it's not helped. I just don't see why it was necessary. It's not helped by the fact that we actually do see the water recede and come back to make the wave beforehand. 
Yeah, what caused that? Mm-hmm. You know, because that's how tsunamis work. But. Yeah, but generally you have to have a, a, an earthquake do that. Mm-hmm. But this Godzilla's not an earthquake. Not literally. It's just, no, it's it's an animal. Yeah. I knew you were going to bring this up, and I can't really come up with any good in-universe explanations for it, other than, I assure in their heads, it's, oh, Godzilla is so huge, he he does this. And the So the only thing I can think of is, so I suppose in the filmmakers' minds, it helps to create some mystique around Godzilla, the fact that he can affect the the natural world like this because he's so huge. Now, it doesn't explain it very well, but then again, we've seen some really crazy things happen in these Godzilla movies that were meant to just communicate mystery or awe or something with the, with these creatures. It just feels like they made a stylistic decision to do this, and they're like, okay, sure, let's do it. Mm-hmm. That's about as far as I, that they probably got in the logic of it. So, Elizabeth Olsen... <laughs> She's okay in this movie. Her character is not. She is. We talked a little bit about one this of before. the most generic characters I've ever seen. Just absolutely does nothing for me. I really like her acting. She's okay, but I just don't care for her character, and it's because there's just nothing to see here. She seems to be a cardboard cutout wife character. And she's so distanced from what is going on in the movie overall. Like, mainly her job is seemingly to observe things. And it just... (sighs) She's like the new Mickey Sagusa. (laughs) It just doesn't work. Either get rid of the character or redo the character or something. I'm not sure exactly how you rehab a character like this when the story is is in this kind of a structure. Mm -hmm. But the scenes with... Ford and her are just not there either. It's not as bad as like a Lifetime movie or anything, <laughs> but it just kind of sits there. Mm-hmm. And maybe the, it was written differently or it looks like his he has like a, a job duty to her. as It doesn't look as much as like they love each other. <laughs> it's just that they need to get across the emotional connection of that some more. And it probably would have helped. It would have helped her character definitely. It would have helped his character also too, because we would have felt more empathy for him, and and we just d- didn't get that quite as much as I would have liked. I had a, a similar feeling with with their son. Yeah, the, the son's little, not there either. Yeah, the, the the little kid. I had actually heard that this character was supposed to be five years old, and and I guess in most. Hollywood movies, when they have a character supposed to be five years old, they usually find child actors who are a few years older and just pass them off as five. Whereas Gareth Edwards actually went and found a five-year-old boy to play this part. Good on him for wanting to try it, but I don't think the kid quite gets what's going on sometimes. He seems a little distant. Definitely not like the little kids in the Godzilla movies. No, he's no Kenny. (laughs) No. He's not a Kenny, but you don't get a lot out of this kid. He's not involved at all. No. And and the wife isn't really involved either with very much. I mean, he has a couple of good moments. I like the part where he asks Ford, are you going to be home tomorrow? Yeah, that got across more of the the whole military aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, I'm not saying that the kid is just straight up terrible, but 
his moment he needed more moments like that in order to make the character more effective i really wonder if they needed the kid at all and you could just have had him in a relationship with her you you bring up the the whole tsunami thing i want to know how nobody figured out that there was a giant hole in the side of that mountain <laughs> I mean, all these guys are scrambling around because it's like, oh yeah, you you put it where you keep uh, you put that thing where where you keep all your nuclear waste, and they run around and they go to the room where the cocoon is supposed to be, and it's not there. And then they look out like, oh, there's a there's light in here. What's that? And then the camera pans out. There's this giant hole in the side of a mountain. Yeah, it's like you're in your house, and then you realize there's a giant hole in your house. Just go, yeah. oh, how did that get there? Yeah, dang. <laughs> yeah, somebody should have been able to tell on their way going into the place. It's not that big. Yeah, I, I mean, seriously, guys, you could have seen that from a helicopter. The sequence of scenes with the nuclear weapon on the railroad bridge, the nuclear weapons that they Mm -hmm. have, I'm wondering a little bit why that scene was there, I guess, Hmm. would be the reason. Because there are nuclear weapons all over the place in Montana and stuff, too. And then there are nuclear power plants around, but apparently the power plants aren't enough juice or anything, and the Mudos aren't attracted to them. But... The, the the railroad bridge sequence is kind of long, and it's nice to look at. It's a good scene to do. I just wonder if it belongs in this movie. Hmm. I can't really think of any other reason, but it's it's sort of like darn if you do, darn if you don't. Mm-hmm. You you since you have the story doing this, you you need to be able to have that scene. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I would have maybe I would have created some system in the story to avoid this kind of a scene. I don't know. Hmm. I go back and forth on what I think about that scene. It's shot well. Yes. <laughs> As I mentioned before, because <laughs> I really did enjoy that sequence. Did this story need to have a twist? What's the twist? I don't know. Think of something. But it, I feel like there should be a twist about three quarters of the way through the movie. And I don't know what it is. So the Golden Gate Bridge scene... And we got our school bus on the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. And a scene that reminds me a lot of the beginning of Pacific Rim. <laughs> or Superman 1978. Mm-hmm. That too. Because that had a pretty long Golden Gate Bridge part. Mm-hmm. And this was part of the story that was written in 1994 that didn't get made. This, this part of it. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that the Golden Gate Bridge is overused. And it's a very predictable place to have a scene like this. And also, aside from the fact that the police seemingly have a barricade set up so that the school bus can't get to the other side. Like, I guess I'd blame the cops for that. Because literally, there, there's a there's a barrier. Yeah. Our general saying, him looking at it and saying, hey, there's people on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because the cops aren't letting them across. <laughs> And so you're manufacturing that situation, which is just strange. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't get much out of the of the uh, Golden Gate Bridge part. And yeah, probably Godzilla would have to come through there in order to get into San Francisco in the first place. Again, it's one of those situations where I don't know what else I would do. But at the same time, I would have tried to do something more original. Multiple times in this movie... They mispronounce Nevada. <laughs> it's a pet peeve of mine. It's not Nevada. It's Nevada. Mm-hmm. The little clip that we get of the naval vessels 
following Godzilla as he's swimming east, that totally doesn't work. <laughs> There's like four ships just right there, like literally just a few hundred feet mm-hmm. away from there. And I thought, gee, wouldn't you be like a, like a mile back <laughs> with the helicopter following him? Yeah, probably. Instead of just say, let's get all of let's get the entire sum of the fleet and then just steer them right next to him the whole time. And as if we're guiding him or whatever, even though we know that he could change direction or who knows, but that, yeah, that is a just, good point. <laughs> just looking at that, you're my, my brain just went off and said, this doesn't look right. Have it like back up further. Don't show it from straight up in the air. Have the camera move from Godzilla first and then have the camera track over to the naval vessels that are following him. It yeah. just it just would have looked better. It kind of doesn't make any sense. I guess the they just felt confident that Godzilla wouldn't make any sudden changes of direction. <laughs> I, I guess so, because they're you know, risking everything, including their lives. Yeah. <laughs> this scene with the Ta- Akira Takarada cameo, I was <sighs> looking at the information about this movie online, and it said, oh, well, this, uh, this scene has been saved and is a special feature on the disc. It's not. And I looked, and I was like, hey, it's not. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I had looked at this disc before, and and there wasn't anything on it then either. And and I thought, wow, that's crap. First of all, they should have kept that in there. Because it was only, like, what, 15 seconds, if that? Yeah. I guess I've seen a so screenshot. Minuscule. Someone got a hold of it somehow and took a screenshot, and I've seen a screenshot. It's He plays... A clerk at the at the airport and Ford the, meets him. Yeah, at the at like the ticket desk where yeah. he's purchasing his ticket. Yep. Yeah, but I, I would have loved to see some to have seen that. I don't yeah. know why you delete that. The fans were upset that that was removed. I was upset that it was removed because it was a big deal. They were talking about, oh yeah, Takarada makes a a cameo in this movie, and that was really cool. And yeah, it doesn't seem like much to ask to keep that in. Yeah, I don't think Takarada was very happy about it being deleted either, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which I could understand. I mean, the guy. I had to travel all the way to the U.S. to film one scene, and then it gets excluded. Moving on to some interesting things, uh, we, we need to tackle the death of Brody. Yes, Joe Brody, It's it's been an oft-talked-about aspect of this movie. It really does subvert expectations, because I will admit going into it, you're talking about doing things differently. I really went into this thinking that a big part of this movie was going to be Ford and Joe reconnecting as father and son amidst all of the craziness Mm -hmm. as they were journeying back to the United States. But that doesn't happen. And much ado has been made about the fact that the best actor in this movie gets killed off. Having mentioned a a twist, this is probably the closest thing to a twist. Yeah. And I read a very interesting defense of this decision. And that was that for the very reason that it does subvert your expectations. You think the movie's going to go in this direction, and then it goes into another one. The argument was made that it shows that nobody is safe in this movie. A character you thought you were going to see the entire time, who has main character immunity, that's kind of the joke term that I've heard for it, main character immunity, dies inside of 40 minutes. Not even halfway through the movie. Right, they're subverting our, our expectations, but also they're they're emphasizing about how this is a kaiju film slash disaster film, and you don't know what's going to happen because it's a crisis. Yes. And so it gives vulnerability to the other characters, too, by mm-hmm. the fact that we have one that is, that, like you said, it breaks the idea of main character immunity. So even if your intention is to keep the rest of the characters alive, which obviously is what happens, 
it still gives you the impression that may not happen. I find it very interesting how close this story is to Ricky Dicky Tavi. Yes, I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned it. I grew up watching the animated version of that story. As did I. By Chuck Jones oh, and company. Oh, wonderful. And it's fantastic, but it has a lot of similarities. Because that story is our mongoose, who is uh, having to be pitted up against a male and a female snake. Mm-hmm. A pair of cobras. Mm-hmm. And so that's one similarity. And then the mongoose destroys the eggs, mm-hmm. which the, we have eggs getting destroyed in this, mm-hmm. although it's not by Godzilla. No. It's, it's in order to get some human involvement in our third act. Mm-hmm. And then the mongoose kills the cobras, not because the mongoose hates them, is because that's what mongooses do. Mm-hmm. And so it's a natural chain of events that occurs that that's part of nature mm-hmm. so that's interesting there too mm-hmm. never would have made the connection between godzilla and rudyard kipling that's no very nice no it's it, i don't remember where i read this it's kind of all over now um but it's very very interesting it's a connection that i would not have made on my own even but it, until somebody mentioned it mm-hmm. but it's fine it's pretty cool mm-hmm. speaking of literary connections in this movie. I mentioned before about how Gareth Edwards filmed the the Halo jump to look like a descent into hell. Well, my most recent viewing, it, it occurred to me, we have not only a descent into hell, but we also have an ascent into heaven. So it's kind of like the divine comedy in that aspect. And I'm thinking specifically at the end, after the second Muto has been killed and the, the Ford is being rescued by uh, by the military and we have a bright light from the helicopter. It's in his face. He can't really see anything except for when someone is looking at him. And then he is hoisted up on a stretcher up into the helicopter. So yeah, he's he like, go towards the light. Yeah, going toward the light. Yeah, so he's... And then in the distance, you see the uh, the ICBM be de- being detonated. So that adds even more light to the scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sound is a bit muted. You don't hear a whole lot. So... Like I said, you, you go from a descent into hell, and then he is rescued out of hell and taken to heaven, in a way. Did you make the connection between Ken Watanabe and The Last Samurai? Well, yeah, because, you know, <laughs> he was in that movie. Yeah, and then did you notice the connection between Godzilla and Saigo Takamori? Oh, the Who fella... was the real Last Samurai? No, I hadn't. Godzilla's kind of like a Last Samurai, in that he's the last one of his kind... And that he has to make a stand on his own against these two creatures, and he's doing his duty. And so it has a little bit of that going on because he huh. sort of has samurai values of just <laughs> doing what's right and restoring balance. Restoring balance, yeah. So it, it goes along with the alpha predator mm-hmm. thing, but in this case, he's the lone alpha predator. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how that relates back to Saigo Takamori and the sort of solitary existence of the. Last Samurai and how Godzilla is all alone. That's a very appropriate thing to have in this movie, I would say. It's very Japanese. When preparing for this podcast and doing all of this research on nuclear plants and the nuclear power in Japan, one inescapable thing that I have seen at all of these nuclear power plants in Japan is that every single one of them is right next to the ocean. With our Janjira nuclear power plant, that's not the case. It's not on the no. ocean shore. <laughs> and 
when I saw this this last time, I was like, oh, hey, that's on land and it's not right next to the water source. That's And then I went on Google Earth where I had all of every single nuclear power plant in Japan <laughs> marked. I went through every single one and they're all on the ocean. Every single mm-hmm. one. There's no exception. It probably I was one of the few people to actually notice that at all. Probably when watching this, but <laughs> be, because we've researched so much and, and yeah. learned about these things that when I see that, I'm like, Hey, wait a minute. Why isn't... This is why Janjira is, is a fictional place. <laughs> and they put it right next to Tokyo. They did <laughs> on the map very briefly, but it, oh. it, the closest one to Tokyo is um, the Tokai nuclear power mm. plant. Yeah. Which we've talked about Japan, before. Which, yeah. yeah. That, the, that is uh Featured in uh, some of our movies. Mm-hmm. Something funny I thought was going on with this movie was during our uh, train on the bridge sequence that they're using the train horn. <laughs> and I was like, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> but the, the other thing is, is that the other guys who are further ahead of them are, they run into the Mudo, obviously, but the dude that's on the walkie talkie that's with Brody is like, what's going on over there? And they're like, ah, that's like screaming, come in. I, like, I think you don't know what's going on. I think everybody who's watching this movie knows what's going on over there. They're, they're, they didn't see a bear. <laughs> no. And then, and then he does it again. But it's like, it's like the guys on the other end took the time to actually press the walkie talkie button while they're <laughs> just it's like the response. It. Yeah. And it's like the guy is like, this should be enough of a response. Click. So, the, but this guy does it again. He's like, come in. And he's, and he's like, <laughs> but it's just, <laughs> it's just funny. Yeah. <laughs> It's like I don't think they're okay. <laughs> See the the thing when you when you hear that your your answer your response to that should be uh oh <laughs> it shouldn't be hey hmm, that's odd I like why is I wonder me? what's going on yeah. <sighs> <sighs> one that uh that I wrote down is a is spoken by our favorite housewife slash nurse it's just like come on I thought we were beyond lines like this because it's meant to be dramatic irony because. L right before Ford is about to leave says it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Whenever you say that, you know something apocalyptic is about to happen. Just like when the authorities tell people not to panic. Yes. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, this is time to panic. At one point in this in this film, the guys are looking for Brody at the shelter when he's looking for his wife. Mm-hmm. This is towards the end, and they're like, "We're looking for Brody," and, and I thought. We have a subpoena to give him. <laughs> You've been served. <laughs> it was illegal to blow up that nest. Or maybe it's like, you, you were insubordinate for blowing up that nest. Hear that? Or uh, we realized that Monarch accidentally showed you the slideshow and you're under arrest because we need to stop you from ever telling anybody. Oh, wait, the secret's already out. Dang it. <laughs> That doesn't apply anymore. Speaking of slideshows, <laughs> you know, if they had just done this, the the slideshow thing once, I mean, the fact they're even using a projector and doing it seems strangely old fashioned. They just done it once. It would have been enough. But it shows up again in Skull Island. So I think slideshows are just Monarch's thing. 
<laughs> Everything is a slideshow. Maybe someone I can see someone at Monarch just pranking somebody and they're going there like there's like, okay, now we have to tell you all of these secrets about all of the kaiju and and all of this. And then someone sneaks in slides from their family vacation. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Uh, uh, that's my son. Oh wait, no, he's not a monster. Oh wait, wait. Hey. <laughs> then and I thought of just a, like a stranger walking in on them doing this slideshow. Like, hey, what are you guys doing? Or like the AV guy that they had set up the projectors. Like, what are these slides of? Whoa, this is interesting. Yeah, there's so much stuff that you could do with this slideshow yeah. routine. That's why I'm hoping that they actually they actually bring it back in the in Godzilla 2, Godzilla King of the Monsters is what it's being called right now uh, in 2019. <laughs> and they maybe like, "Oh, here's a slideshow for Ghidorah." Yeah. <laughs> Ghidorah's family vacation, which is actually just him and all three of his heads. <laughs> At 13320, that's when we it was really funny watching this movie at G Fest because there's that part where the, the doors close on the monster fight. Yes. And like everybody in the, the whole theater was like, Oh, <laughs> when that happened, because we, we get to the doors close on the monster action that everybody's yeah. going crazy for. Uh-huh. Well, that was funny. You usually don't see theaters where people are like, Oh, that's something. Buzzkill. Every time I watch this movie, I always snicker at that point when the female Muto is a is going after Ford and he just whips out his pistol. Yeah. When he's lying there on the boat, his he's his his leg is wounded, he just whips out the pistol and points that and I'm thinking, dude, really? You're just that's just the that's just the firearm equivalent of a safety blanket now for you, isn't it? It's just to help you feel better. <laughs> it's interesting that he never fires a gun. In this movie. That is true. Yeah, the whole time he doesn't. He, he carries them, but he never shoots anything. This is a very serious movie. There aren't a lot of actual jokes in it. As opposed to 98. Yeah. Ugh. But one that little bit of intentional humor is there's a, a point where over Stens is talking about uh, our monsters. And he says, this is the massive unidentified terrestrial organism, although it is no longer terrestrial. <laughs> Referring to the fact that this one can, can fly. fly. So I guess it doesn't count as terrestrial anymore. Before we close up part two, I, I just want to give a little shout out to my to my friend Ben Avery. He uh, actually helped get me started about podcasting about Godzilla. He had me on his show back in 2014 to talk about this movie, his, his, uh, his podcast Strangers and Aliens. We, uh, we actually met each other at a convention because he's a comic book writer and he was at a local con here in Fort Wayne. He was selling his books. And I said, hey, when the, when the convention's done for the day, you want to come with me and my brother and we'll go catch this movie and you can have me on your show. And he said, that'd be great. So thanks, Ben. Help get this podcast started. This concludes part two of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we discuss an issue that was either brought up by the film or was going on at the time that the film was released. This time, we will be talking about the 2014 reinterpretation of Article 9 of Japan's Constitution. One of the things that I'm grateful for is, especially if you've been following along with us in the podcast, is a lot of the topics that we have been discussing throughout this series actually feed into this. In episode three for the original Godzilla film, 
we uh, discussed briefly about how Japan's constitution was created, who wrote it, and uh, specifically about Article 9 and what it does. Mm -hmm. In Episode 5, for Godzilla Raids Again, that's when we talked about the JSDF and the founding of the JSDF and how it's so different from, um, as you would say, normal militaries. Mm -hmm. And how the, the Japanese people's attitudes toward the JSDF has changed over the decades. And that is an extension of how Japan is becoming a more normal country, so to speak, since the war. There were a lot of changes in the security environment surrounding Japan over the years because there's a a big difference between 1947 or so, or 1950, and now. And so there are a lot of reasons why Japan is going the direction that it's going. One would be the rise of China and how much bigger and more powerful and uh, how modernized China's military is. And so this is all in proportion because now China is the second largest economy in the world. It's not Japan anymore. China is asserting itself much more. They're spending a lot of money on uh, military spending. It's a tough situation because you have China flexing their muscles in the region and trying to become the dominant country in the region. The end of the Cold War created at least a break for in the urgency for the U.S.-Japan alliance. It made Japan want to make allies with more countries than just us. So we have Japan branching out to other allies and trying to make trade agreements as well as defense agreements with them. The threat of North Korea missiles and all of the uh, all of the threat of uh, Kim Jong Un and his uh, country that is creating a lot of urgency in Japan for missile defense and um, trying to get control of the situation themselves because you don't want to be at the mercy of a country like that. Yes, in fact, North Korea has had a little bit of a penchant for firing their missiles over Japan is uh, to test them. Uh, they did that in 1998, as we mentioned in our previous episode on Godzilla in 1998. And more recently, they did the same thing, which created a lot of tension. There's also the need for Japan to try to, the need to intercept missiles that are possibly going towards the United States. So a missile defense system is urgently needed in Japan, as well as other ways for Japan to defend themselves. Japan has to deal with the issue of how to use its soft power and turn that into hard power. Because Japan is the third largest economy in the world, and yet their military does not match that in proportion. Japan is trying to take the position that they deserve. In other words, to balance the economy with proportional military strength as far as just its contribution that it needs to make to keeping the world's stable. So it's a, a matter of Japan's contribution to the overall security of the world. Also, there's a matter of defending the lives of its own citizens. There's a need to balance the power of Japan's military with the power of the United States military as well, because these two countries are in an alliance and they are bound to help each other now whenever there's a situation it's important that Japan doesn't play a disproportionate role where the Japan keeps taking the backseat to the United States. And it's more about self-sustainability. 
It's also beneficial for them because they won't have to be as dependent on the United States for their defense. Along with that comes the need to strengthen the alliance with the U.S. In other words, you need the ability for Japan to be able to help the United States if they get into a conflict in the the East Asian region. And so it's about allowing Japan's uh, JSDF to be able to help the United States in case the United States gets into a problem. All of this adds up to Japan's sense of vulnerability. They have fragile economic growth now. Their country is in a very late stage of development. Uh, there, there is going to be a population decrease, an aging of the population. This is this all again con- all things we talked about in previous episodes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so this all really boils down to Japan needing to protect itself in this region that has changed so much with all of these different factors that are contributing to a more difficult security environment. Which brings us to the focal point of all of this, which is Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. Now, we've talked about Article 9 off and on uh, throughout this podcast, particularly when we had our JSDF episode, episode 5. We've always talked about what it was, but we never actually told you what it said. This is the text of Article 9. Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation, or the threat or use of force as a means of settling disputes with other nations. In order to achieve the purpose of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. This is rather an idealistic part of the Constitution, right? Because very much this so. it sounds like a shadow of the Kellogg-Briand Pact mm-hmm. that was signed before World War II, which said that we renounce war, and so then we'll never have war again. That's great. And then they all sign it. And then, obviously, just relatively soon after that is when everything goes to hell and war gets declared. Yeah. Uh, it was also put in because the the United States wanted to make sure that there would not be a return to Imperial Japan after World War II. There's a reason why Japan is doing this, and it's the fact that when you have an enemy right next door to you, the best thing to do is to be just as fortified and as powerful militarily as your next door neighbor. That way, nobody's going to try to take advantage of you because they know that you're tough. And that leads us to our definition of militarism, because militarism is a term that gets thrown around, and it seems like when a country wants to defend itself and is spending money on its defense budget, that is militarism. You know, like building up a strong military is militarism. Um, It's not. Militarism is using the military aggressively to promote the national interest, also is glorification of the military and having a distinguished military class in, the, in, the, in a country that rules. That's what militarism is. In 2014, the same year that this movie was released, that is when Japan decided to do a reinterpretation of Article 9. Changing Article 9 has been something that Prime Minister Abe and certain members of the LDP have been spearheading since as far back as 2007. 
Back then, Abe created a panel to see if this was something that Japan should engage in because they needed to be able to engage in collective self-defense, as he was putting it. The panel, which was called the Advisory Panel on Reconstruction of the Legal Basis for Security, looked at four different scenarios that would entail this. One, repelling attacks against a U.S. fleet on the open sea. Two, intercepting ballistic missiles fired toward the United States. Three, using weapons to safeguard units of other countries engaged in joint UN peacekeeping operations. And four, providing a wider range of logistic support to other nations for peacekeeping operations. And this is relevant because, again, as we've mentioned before in the podcast, Japan by this point was already increasing its involvement with UN operations and uh, overseas. And that was starting to pick up more when Koizumi was prime minister in the early 2000s. These four different scenarios all involving, they all involve self, collective self-defense. And that is defending a, another friendly nation that you're with from attack. So that is collective self-defense. So mainly what we're talking about here is the United States. And uh, if, if the United States comes under attack, uh, as in a, a few of those different four situations, then that would trigger the alliance. And then the Japanese uh, JSDF would then have to take control and, uh, and participate and, uh, and defend allies. And so this is a matter of strengthening the U.S. alliance with Japan to the point that no matter what, that if the United States is pulled into an entanglement and, is, and comes under attack, then Japan uh, will not need to have to ask any other questions before it starts participating. The idea here is that if Japan isn't able to engage in collective self-defense, then that is a damage to the alliance because then it weakens the alliance. And so that would be that that's the negative that they're trying to avoid. So the reinterpretation of Article 9, that is what enabled Japan to have collective self-defense. That is what the, the events of 2014 and the Constitution, that is what the, the sum of it all is. And the United States supported it because it strengthened the alliance. And allies engaged in combat internationally that Japan is allied with, they like that too. And that would include the Philippines, Vietnam, and Indonesia, especially. And they supported it. However, this made China very angry. Obviously. And South Korea expressed reservations where they said that only if South Korea comes under attack, that South Korea must give permission to JSDF personnel and equipment in order for the Japanese to be involved in South Korea. The way that Abe did this was rather controversial in that he used a cabinet fiat in order to make the changes. And then in 2015, a year after this, that was when uh, the Diet passed a bunch of bills in order to formalize those changes. There was no vote in the Diet that was taken, and there was no, there was no referendum that took place either. And that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. The deal is, is that two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the upper house in the Diet have to have a two-thirds vote in order to pass a constitutional revision. And then a referendum has to take place, like a nationwide vote, in order to, to approve that change to the Constitution. You have to understand, the Japanese have never revised their Constitution. So it's something that makes them a little bit nervous. It's not like over here in the United States, where we've made revisions to our Constitution. We've added more amendments and such. 
we've even changed some of them. I mean, we had an amendment put in that that uh, brought about prohibition, and then we added one later that uh, nullified that. So it's something that we as Americans are used to, but they're not. There was also a constitutional expert who testified, and he said that the move that the cabinet made to change the constitution like this, this reinterpretation, he said that it was actually illegal and unconstitutional, which that uh, created a lot of press for that. This points to how the public in Japan is very divided on this issue. Yeah, very much so. I, in all of the articles that I read, it was usually a, from different sources, different surveys, different polls. It was usually about 50-50. There are varying levels of opinions in Japan with regards to Article 9, and they, they, it goes from the most pacifist to the uh, most nationalist. The most pacifistic ones want to maintain Article 9 and insist that the even the JSDF is unconstitutional, and they want to make sure that Japan is not getting involved with foreign wars. It's because the JSDF is actually not mentioned in the Japanese constitution. No, uh, they got around it by calling them a police force initially, a military police force. There are others who believe that the only function that the JSDF should serve is as a peacekeeping force and that they want a minimal amount of spending on the military and that the military should only engage in stuff that the UN Charter says is okay to use them for. So it's a very minimalist role and minimalist spending on uh, the JSDF. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who th- want Article 9 to be revised just so they can clarify what the purpose and function of the SDF is. Yeah, so they want the existence of the JSDF and the purpose to be codified in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And then the, the more nationalistic forces want to actually remilitarize Japan and actually give the country nuclear capabilities. And this is for independence and for national pride. And so that's where the nationalism part comes in. And nationalism is defined as the desire for self-governance, self-determination, uh, freedom from outside influences, promotion of a national identity and culture, pride in nation's achievements, maintaining a national identity, uh, using national symbols such as flags and anthems, national myths, and it's a it's a this is a nationalism is a lot of it is a social structure, and it's the desire for power and prestige for the nation. And that is quite different from patriotism because patriotism is the attachment to homeland, ethnic, cultural, political, historical reasons. And it's the devotion to the place that you live and the way that you live. And so militarily and culturally it's defensive. And then nationalism is more offensive patriotism. Regarding the right to belligerency that is in Article 9 and and how it says the Japan should have no right of belligerency, well, it's been recommended that that be gotten rid of from Article 9 because inspecting ships in your national waters and destroying enemy military facilities is part of the right of belligerency. So if you don't have the right of belligerency, it means that you can't attack the military capacity of someone who's attacking you. And that seems like a generally bad idea. It's not really... Overall, it's not unreasonable to say that Japan should be able to do one of those things or both of those things. And then Japan should also be able to defend itself. Preemptive strikes mm. are included in national defense. And, and so if, you're, if we're going to go the whole way, then that does allow Japan to be able to engage in collective defense even before 
a, a conflict actually occurs. And that's an important distinction to make because most normal countries are able to do that, is engage in preemptive strikes. And Prime Minister Abe, at the, the time this was all going on, actually said in 2014, quote, This is not going to change Japan into a country that wages wars. A strengthened Japan-United States alliance is a force of deterrence that contributes to the peace of Japan and this region, end quote. This speaks to the fact that the situation in East Asia has changed dramatically since the war. When Article 9 was first put into place, it was meant to keep Japan from getting involved in foreign wars during the Cold War. Well, now the way the situation is set up, it's more likely that Japan may end up dragging the United States into a war with one of its neighbors by activating the alliance. So the United States has a vested interest in the process Japan is going through to amend Article 9. Right, because we've reached a time where the pacifist constitution, it's harder to sell this idea just because of how much things have changed in East Asia and how many more threats there are and how the security environment has completely changed. This goes along with Prime Minister Abe's desire to engage in diplomacy in order to clarify exactly what he's doing. He's made a lot of steps to talk to other world leaders and say, look, this is why we're doing this. This is not why we're doing this. There have long been a lot of drafts for what the new Article 9 should look like, etc. And the one issue that has also been raised is the issue of military courts or military tribunals, which is a, a thing to have when JSDF personnel engage in crimes. And so the idea is where to try them. And so this would be the creation of uh, military courts just for that purpose, because that's not in the Constitution either. Additionally, a military draft is another thing that has been talked about putting into the Japanese constitution in order to uh, keep the military replenished with personnel. And that is uh, a big issue, too, because that gets argued a lot. Issues of civilian control of the military are also present, in that if the JSDF is turned into a military, the, the issue is, is that the JSDF and the defense ministry are incorporated into the government. So there's not as much of a separation between the government and the military as there is in other, other countries around the world, including the United States. Uh, and the prime minister is also the de facto leader of the JSDF. Some have said that Japan's prime minister is a little bit different from other prime ministers in that the, the military serves the prime minister. However, Japan does have rules that say that the prime minister and the cabinet members shall not be members of the military. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, so they're separating out the civilians from the military, and they're saying that the cabinet should be made up of civilians. And so that is one barrier against possible militarism in the future. Building up to the future, specifically towards 2020, we got a lot of things going on. We have had Japan reduce... The, uh, its limits on exporting arms to other countries. We've had Japan getting with other nations and doing good diplomacy there, uh, as well as even joining a NATO uh, missile building consortium. Uh, the, Japan has been connecting more with France and the UK with regards to uh, military items. This definitely does not sound very isolationist. No. 2020 is a big year because Prime Minister Abe has set that as the year in order to have the new constitutional referendum, 
with the changes to Article 9. And this is a pretty risky move just because things are 50-50 right now in um, the sentiment in the country. Yeah, this has been one of his defining issues, a big part of his agenda. And if he doesn't get this to go through, he runs the risk of having to resign. Yes, like many prime ministers in many countries, if their agenda has that big of a failure, uh, a lot of times the prime minister will resign uh, in face of a no-confidence vote because the agenda that he was trying to pass was not passed. Abe has also had some scandals recently, and that is helping to drag down his approval rating and reduce the confidence in him and his government. And so this is putting the constitutional changes at risk. The last time that he was up for election, he didn't even really talk about this issue at all because he knew how much of a trigger it was uh, for so many people to get upset about. But as soon as he got elected, this became the primary uh, issue that he was trying to get through long term. Some of the other goals that Abe has is he wants, by 2020, he wants 550 troops on Amami Oshima, which is an island close to the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. He also wants to build bases on Miyako and Ishigaki Islands by then, too. And this will bring the total number of troops on islands in the East China Sea to about 10,000 troops by the year 2020. And this is to hold off China and be able to have troops that could be quickly mobilized in case China tries anything. 2020 is the same year of the Olympics in Japan as well, so 2020 is looking to be a very, very big year in Japanese history for the better or for the worse. The LDP, which is uh, Prime Minister Abe's party, they also are heavily divided on this issue, specifically in what ways to revise the Constitution in Article 9, because there are there's the camp that say we just need to codify the JSDF's existence uh, in the Constitution in order to stop making them unconstitutional, but there are others that want to go a lot further, and so there's even a divide within Abe's party. Along with Japan making all of these changes, like increasing their defense budget, increasing their capability for self-defense, and increasing their military capacity, the way that China and North Korea are playing this is that Japan is a militant country, quote unquote, because they and they're going back to their expansionism of the uh, empire and all of that. It is a way to deflect from problems at home, definitely, is to demonize other countries around you. But this doesn't really uh, work. I mean, it's pretty clearly propaganda, just because Japan, in order to turn it back into an isolationist yet imperialist country, they're going to have to get a lot more hardcore than what Abe is, because I do not see Japan attempting to invade China again anytime soon. I don't don't see (laughs) Japan becoming an expansionist, militaristic country. So it, it really doesn't ring very true to me. Another thing that directly connects to this is that in 2014, the same year that this movie was made, uh, President Obama visited Japan, which it had been a while uh, since the president had visited Japan. And what he did was he said how the Senkaku Islands are protected under Mm -hmm. the security treaty Mm -hmm. between the U.S. and Japan. And he wanted to get rid of the idea of ambiguity in this kind of thing. So you want to have clear boundaries in situations like this. And in 2012, Japan purchased the Senkaku Islands from a private holder. The American president came out and said to China, pretty much, saying that the Senkakus are definitely protected under the security treaty, so don't try anything, because it will trigger the alliance and it will get the United States immediately involved, which that's setting a red line. 
Before we close up shop, uh, we need those economic figures, Brian. In 2014, Japan's GDP growth was negative 0.1%. In between this and our last Godzilla movie 10 years before this, uh, the 2009 world uh, global recession occurred, which knocked a lot of the power out of Japan's GDP growth as well as their stock market. And in 2015, since we don't have a Godzilla movie then, growth in Japan was 1.2% GDP, so uh, quite low numbers as uh, usual here lately. It was also in 2014 that the consumption tax was raised from 5% to a whopping 8%. Yeah, we talked about the consumption tax a couple episodes ago. Alrighty, all this talk about Article 9 and reforming the Constitution, militarism, nationalism, all that fun stuff dovetails very nicely into what our next movie will be. And our next movie will be Shin Godzilla from 2016, which is our first Japanese Godzilla film in 12 years. This will be very exciting. It's funny that we created this podcast and about the emphasis on international relations and history and, and, and all of this. And then we see Shin Godzilla after we created this idea. And I thought, wow, this totally fit into exactly what we wanted to make this podcast yeah, about. It fits in so perfectly. Yeah, it was a very uh, welcome thing to see this film. And uh, we look very much forward to discussing it and tackling all of the intricacies of this very interesting film. We hope to see you then. Goodbye for now. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel and I edited this podcast And I'm Nathan Marchant and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara!